I wrote a book called How to Win the Culture War, and I'm not going to summarize that book here because I still vividly remember the first time I ever went as a member of the audience to hear a famous speaker. I won't tell you who he is, but you all would recognize his name. All he did was read a chapter from his latest book, and he got big bucks for this. I said, this is robbery. I'm not going to do that. I write books so that I can speak to people this way, so that I can write letters this way. A book is a, a letter written simultaneously to many people at the same time. So I'm not going to rob you by summarizing my book. Maybe none of you have read it, but you can. It's out there in public. So I'd like to go a little deeper. I'd also like to keep my talk short because philosophers talk too much. We all talk too much. And that's going to be one of the themes of my talk, in fact. You talk so much about not talking so much that one thinks that if you only practiced what you preached, you'd be better off. Like Job, after 37 chapters, he finally says the very best words that he ever speaks. The words of Job are ended. Then God can get a word in edgewise. <laughs> what I'd like to do is go a little more deeply into the question of how a Christian can win the culture war. We all know we're at war. We all know that the war is for the heart of our culture. We all know how serious the culture war is, I hope. But I wonder if we know the other half. The other half is summarized nicely by a line from T.S. Eliot, a paradoxical line, a prayer. It says, teach us to care and not to care. Obviously, we have to care. If we don't care, we just throw up our hands in exhaustion and defeat and withdraw from the battlefield. And our commanding officer will not allow that. AWOL Christians are not very helpful. But most of us don't realize the other half, that in order to win the war, we have to also not care. It's a worthy cause, but it is not the kingdom of heaven. It is a good, but we should not become addicted to it. We should not become addicted to anything. So I'd like to talk about the non-seriousness of the culture war. We all know the seriousness. Let me just first say I'm not by any means minimizing this. The importance of culture is enormous, I think, for two reasons. Both of these reasons have something to do with the ultimate meaning of life, the greatest good, ultimate human destiny, the fulfillment of God's plan for us. That meaning, that plan, that purpose, that supreme good is clearly announced in many different places in Scripture. Jesus puts it in these startling words in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. He puts it in the famous sermon to Nicodemus by saying, you must be born again. This is radical. Peter puts it in these words in his second epistle, Chapter 1, verse 4. There has been given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. The Greek word for this, for life or eternal life or spiritual life or the life that comes from being born again is a special word, zoe. It's not just bios. It's not just natural life. It's supernatural life. Eastern Orthodox theology calls this theosis, that is, receiving as a gift the divine nature that Christ has by nature and eternally. 
and wants to share with us. You might call it becoming a saint, not just in the sense of a do-gooder, but in the sense of a little Christ. This is the ultimate meaning of human life. Now, the connection between this and culture is surprisingly close. First of all, if this happens, it's going to spill over and transform all culture. Life doesn't stay to itself. Life doesn't stay there like a rock. It grows. And it spreads into everything around you. So the transformation of our culture would be a result of this zoe, this supernatural life. And if we're Christians, we have it. And therefore, we have to transform culture. No question. More important even than that is that the culture can aid or detract us from attaining this supreme thing. The culture can hold you back, or the culture can help you. The best definition I've ever seen of a good society is Dorothy Day's. She said, a good society is simply a society that helps you to be good. That's the wisdom of a child. The culture can't do it, but the culture can help you. In a toxic culture, being healthy and surviving is harder. So the most pressing reason for transforming our culture is that our culture can make it difficult for us and our children, and increasingly for our children's children, to go to heaven. This is why we should transform our culture. So, no question about being an activist. No question that we are obliged to transform culture. We know that already. And I don't want to tell you what you know. I don't think that's valuable. You'd like me for it. I pat you on the head and say how wise you are. And you pat me on the head and say how wise you are to tell us how wise we are. And we all go home smiling at each other. But I'd rather tell you something that I think many of you don't know. And that's the unimportance of culture. And if we don't understand that, we won't win the culture war. That's the other half of T.S. Eliot's saying. Teach us to care, we know that, and not to care. What does he mean by that? Let me start by quoting something from a strange source. It's a Zen Buddhist source, not a Zen Buddhist. Zen Buddhist theology is miles apart from Christian theology, if there is any at all. But they often have a profound insight into the human psyche. And I think this is very psychologically profound. When I first heard it, I thought it was simply nonsense. And I couldn't get it out of my mind for a long while. And now I regard it as a, a profound piece of wisdom. You'll probably regard it as nonsense. But maybe it'll stick in your mind. And maybe at some time in the future, you might think there's some profound wisdom in it. The strange statement is this. I stopped the war by drinking a cup of green tea. Now, in Zen Buddhism, uh, tea ceremony is not just something that repairs body tissue or something that feels good. It's a kind of spiritual exercise, a kind of a semi-sacramental thing. So drinking a cup of green tea is something like prayer or meditation. And stopping the war, of course, is something we all want to do. War is not one of the most brilliant ideas the human race has ever come up with. It amounts to saying... We've got some serious problems between us. What should we do about it? I know. Let's all get into funny-looking uniforms and go out and kill each other tomorrow morning. Great idea. How can we stop the war? 
How can drinking a cup of green tea have anything whatsoever to do with stopping a war? In order to answer that question indirectly, let me read to you something that's very familiar. It doesn't at first sound anything like this. It's from Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse 38, a very familiar story. It came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus turned and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Only one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, be very candid. The story's familiar, but every time you hear it, don't you feel more sympathy for Martha than for Mary? Don't you feel, Jesus, you're being a little unfair. Poor Martha, she's doing everything she possibly can. Look how unselfish she is. Nobody enjoys setting out knives and forks for the table. And everybody enjoys sitting at your feet and listening to you. So isn't Mary being selfish and Martha being unselfish? Furthermore, Mary's not doing anything, and Martha's doing everything, and Mary's leaving Martha to do everything. And Jesus instead says to Martha, poor Martha, you fool. You think there's more than one thing necessary. You're wrong. Mary's right. There's only one thing necessary, one thing needful. She's found it. If that's how we feel about that, then we've got something to learn. I love to explore the passages in Scripture that I don't like. Because that's like a hunter looking in thorn bushes and mysterious dark places for the game. That's where it's hiding. The game doesn't come out into the nice, easy, open plain and sit in the sun and let you shoot it. So the stuff that you don't know is probably in those difficult passages. So let's see if we can find something that we don't yet know here. I said a moment ago that the ultimate meaning of life is clearly revealed in Scripture. One way of putting that, putting the answer to that question, is Jesus' words in John 17, his high priestly prayer to his Father, when he says, This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. He doesn't say the ultimate meaning of life is to do things for God, or even to serve God but to know him. In heaven, we may or may not be doing many of the things we're doing here. But we won't need to. For instance, eating. We need to repair our body tissues here. In the resurrection body, presumably, we won't need to eat. Will we be able to eat? Probably. Jesus, in his resurrection body, ate to prove to his disciples that he was not a ghost. There's another meaning to eating. Eating is fellowship. Eating is a way of being present to each other, a way of sharing the same physical and mental space as each other. And that very well may continue in heaven in a probably radically transformed form. But that brings us into the question, what do we mean by fellowship, by being with each other? And if you look at the most intimate human relationship, 
which is love, and if you look into the most complete and intimate form of love, which is marriage, and if you look at the beginning of a marriage, namely falling in love, and you ask that question of lovers, all they want is the presence of each other. They don't want the other person to do something for them, or even necessarily to say anything, but simply to be there, simply to, to be present. Woody Allen has said some very funny things and some very foolish things, but one of the wisest things he ever said, often quoted, is 90% of life is just showing up. I think that's pretty profound. If somebody you love is dying and you're at their bedside, you often ask, is there anything I can do for you? And it's a silly question because you've already done it. The most important thing is just being there, not saying anything or doing anything. And that's, of course, the very essence of prayer. The best definition of prayer that I've ever heard was from an anonymous peasant, no one ever even knows his name, in France in the 19th century. The holy Corre of ours said that he noticed him sitting quietly and happily in the church for many hours every day. So once he dared to ask him, uh, you come here to pray, Tell me what you do when you pray. And the man said, I just look at him and he looks at me. That's all he needed to say. Martha has always been seen as the paragon of holy work and Mary as holy contemplation. And the two, of course, fit together. They're sisters. Jesus is not condemning Martha. He's just saying, poor Martha, you've put second things first. Whenever you put second things first, not only do you miss first things, you mess up second things. If you put first things first, then not only do you get first things, you also get second things. So if we can do the contemplation of Mary, then we can do the works of Martha in the spirit of Mary instead of the spirit of Martha. And one of the Martha things we have to do is win the culture war. But there are two different ways to fight a war. You can fight it out of fear and out of addiction to victory. Or you can fight it out of duty. Uh, you can fight it simply because you have looked at God and God has looked at you and told you that this is what he wants you to be and do. So you do this not first of all to be successful but to be faithful. Here's another famous quotation, Mother Teresa. Everybody knows the quotation, I hope. God did not put me in this world to be successful. He put me here to be faithful. And that's the only way to be successful. Which means that every Christian, not just Christians in certain traditions, but every Christian has to first of all be quiet and listen. We can't really help each other until we listen to each other. And we can't really listen to each other until we listen to God. And listening doesn't mean doing anything or saying anything. It's not even listening for words. It's just listening. And it's the easiest thing in the world, in one sense. You don't have to do anything. You just admit and attend to the fact, and you know it's a fact. There's no question in your mind, if you're a Christian, that it's a fact. That God is real, and God is present, and God is looking at you. And if you simply stop running away from that fact and face that fact, and that's all, 
then suddenly something happens. You become very quiet. You just know. It's not an analytical knowledge. It's not a logical proof. You just know. It's just awareness of the reality of God. You don't do anything. You don't push buttons in yourself. You don't make yourself a saint. You don't change your personality and become a contemplative. You don't suddenly attain peace. You simply admit the truth. You simply turn, this is a kind of conversion, turn from our habitual attitude, which is to assume that we have the sun behind us and to walk in the opposite direction. We simply turn around and face the sun. And then you're not doing anything, but your whole face is lit up. We do this to each other. When we listen to each other, that's rare, that's special. Something always happens when we listen. People sometimes evaluate a great speaker, but everybody highly evaluates a great listener. Much, much rarer than a great speaker. Not many people can be great speakers. We can all be great listeners. Anybody can be a great listener. You don't have to be an intellectual. You don't have to be trained. You don't have to be anything. You just have to be open and willing. Now, I said I was going to tell you something you didn't know. I lied. You all know that. But you don't do it. I don't do it. How come? We also know that whenever we do it, whenever we forget time and forget what I have to do, and just place ourselves in God's presence, that something always happens. At the beginning of the day, there's three possibilities. You wake up, the alarm clock rings, all sorts of thoughts invade you, like terrorist attacks, dropping little bombs in your brain, saying, think about me, think about me, you have to do this, you have to do this, worry about that, worry about that. You can either go with those thoughts and say, I'm too busy to pray today, uh, I have to accomplish 500 things, and then at the end of the day, you'll find that you only accomplish 50 and not very well. Or secondly, you can say, I'm very busy today, and therefore I've got to take time to pray. And you pray about all these things, and that's good. And you talk to God, and that's good, but you don't listen. And then maybe you accomplish 100 of those things, but not that well. Or you simply say, I am going to be much too busy today not to pray, so I'm going to pray. And God's more important than I am. If I were talking to a little infant, I'd do most of the talking. If I were talking to an equal, I'd do half the talking. And if I were talking to the most brilliant man in the world, I'd do very little of the talking. So if I'm talking to God, I'd better do almost none of it. So you just say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. You just say, be it done to me according to your word. And then what happens? There was a woman who said that once, and what happened was the salvation of the world. And I don't think she's an exception. I think she's a model. I think we all have to be like wombs. And Jesus wants to come down into our world and different parts of our world and our culture again and again. But he will never rape us. He will only seduce us. And we have to open the womb of our mind to him. And that's a very hard thing to do. Why? It's so easy. And it's so joyful. When you do it, at the end of the day, you say, a miracle happened. I accomplished all 500 things. Or maybe 200 and the 300 other ones just fell away as unimportant. I gave him a few loaves and fishes in the morning and now in the evening he's multiplied them. It's a miracle. He's the author of time so he can multiply your time and your life. And he does. And we all know that he does because we've all tried it both ways. 
and it's always worked the one way, and it's never worked the other way. So why do we keep trying to do it the other way? Why do we run around on our own two feet, like Martha, instead of sitting at his feet, like Mary? Well, the only answer I can give is twofold. Number one, we are insane. <laughs> and that fits the doctrine of original sin. And number two, the devil is terrified at that quiet place. And he does everything he possibly can to get us out of it. And once we start listening to him, we're hooked. So, just don't listen. Listen to God. Now, we all know that. I just challenge you to do it. And if you do it, he will tell you something he didn't tell you before. And he'll lead you in a direction he didn't lead you before. And you'll be able to accomplish something. You have no idea what it is now. You haven't listened yet. He hasn't told you yet. Something that you haven't accomplished before. And it'll be for his kingdom. And for his culture in this culture. So there's my one piece of advice on how to fight the culture wars.